everybody. My name is Dr. Amaka Afadu. I am an internal medicine and pediatric physician currently located in Greenville, South Carolina. And I'm so excited to be sharing my journey with you all. And my one word of wisdom is, if you don't believe in you, nobody else will. But if you do believe in yourself, they're going to get on the wagon. Welcome to Pill Talk Podcast. This is not just a regular podcast, but the podcast that's your daily dose of medicine. Something to give you, something to give you to be inspired, motivated, and educated. Today we have our special guest, Dr. Amaka Afadu, here with you today. She's an internal medicine doctor and a pediatric physician. So how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm feeling good. Work wasn't too bad. You know, they didn't kill me today. So life's good. <laughs> That's always How are great. you? I'm good. I appreciate it. I'm happy that I'm finally able to get you on and we're able to yeah. do the interview today. Yes, thank you so much for asking me. Like, I'm actually really excited. <laughs> I appreciate it. I'm so excited to continue hearing what you've been doing, watching your videos, all that stuff. You're doing a lot of great work. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So let's dive a little bit into you, right? All right, let's talk about it. All right. So we want to know, what made you started on this career, career path to become an internal medicine and then to take it another step further to become a physician for the pediatrics? What's up, everybody? Let me introduce myself. My name is Dr. Bartu Wilson. I'm a pharmacist that was featured in one of the most prestigious publications, Marquis Who's Who in 2021, as a top medical professional of the world because of my impact through medication therapy management, outreach programs, and networking. I started my own podcast, Pill Talk Podcast, to sit down and talk with other top medical professionals about their journey. Some of the topics that we cover in our conversations are their career path choice, education level needed to practice in their career field, and most importantly, how they're impacting the lives of the patients that they see daily. So, I would like for you to join me every Monday at 6 p.m. as I release new episodes so you can learn about the different medical fields from the top professionals themselves. I just want to let you know, that Pill Talk Podcast is just not a podcast, it's your medicine. The daily dose you need to educate, motivate, and aspire to live at your full potential. So become an empowered leader and start to dream bigger with Pill Talk Podcast. So, I want you to go ahead and subscribe to my YouTube channel and support the podcast by becoming an active listener and purchasing some merchandise. Thank you. So... It's really funny. So I'm Nigerian American. Um, and a lot of times if you talk to Nigerian, a lot of women are nurses. And when I was younger, I always wanted to do the opposite of what everybody <laughs> else was doing or what people thought I should do. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, well bet since I'm a woman, I'm supposed to be a nurse. Forget that, I'm gonna be a doctor. So I always just had it in my mind that I was going to be a doctor. And then as school went on, I learned that I really enjoyed um, I really enjoyed anatomy, sciences, math, real clear-cut things. Found out that I really help, liked helping people and like teaching people about things. And it just kind of stuck. I ended up applying to medical school when I was 18. Okay. Because it was like, this is what I wanted to do. This is what I'm going to do. So I did an accelerated program, got into med school with the thought process that I was going to be a surgeon. Because I was an athlete when I was younger played basketball, ran track, did all that, and hurt myself. So I tore my ACL, 
I had personal interactions with the orthopedic surgeon and he was really cool. And I had my pediatrician growing up and he wasn't as cool. So I was like, let me go towards the part that I actually like enjoy the interactions that I liked. And so I thought like, okay, orthopedic surgery, which are the doctors who do surgery on bones and joints. Mm-hmm. That way I can still work with athletes. It's fun. Everybody's chill. But I realized that I liked having relationships with my patients and long-term relationships. And you don't necessarily get that if you're going to perform surgery, fix a problem, and then you never see them again. So then I was thinking about internal medicine, and internal medicine is the practice of adult medicine. So anywhere between 18 to 135, however long you And so found out I started liking that, was never going to do peds. So I don't know, forget them kids. Their parents don't get on my nerves. I don't got no time for it. They can't even talk to me. I'm gonna be like, what's wrong? Who got that? No, I need to know what's going on. Ended up falling in love with my pediatric rotation. Love the kids, love the resiliency of them, love the disease processes, love learning about how to care for them. And I was stuck. Do I do adult medicine? Do I take care of kids? And then I found this beautiful thing that allows me to do both. And so that's how I ended up where I'm at. And also realized that I'm very much passionate about health literacy, which is educating people about their health, like personal health, how to stay healthy, how to take care of yourself when you're sick. And if I'm trained to take care of people from the age zero to the age 200, what's a better way for me to be able to promote health literacy than to learn how to take care of all these populations and how to help them? Dope. So that's how I ended up where I'm at. Man, that's a good bit. Uh, we got to break it down so everyone can follow that a little better, right? No, no problem, no problem. No, you did great. So for internal medicine, right? Mm-hmm. What is the education path for someone that wants to get an internal medicine? And so you have three different things, right? So you have internal medicine, which is three years for residency. So you go to medical school. Mm-hmm. You'll complete medical school. Medical school can is most times four years. You have some programs that have a PhD associated to that, but it's a little bit longer. But the majority of med schools are four years. Um, and then during your medical school, what you're going to try to do is do things to make you more competitive to go into internal medicine, which is for adults. Once you do that, you do your research, you do amazing on your clinical rotations, you do your volunteer work, you have your leadership, you're part of all these organizations. You apply and you do three years of training after medical school as a resident, a physician, and then you become an internal medicine doctor. For pediatrics, it's the same thing. The only difference is that you're taking care of kids. So you're still going to try to do all the leadership stuff. You're still going to work your butt off. You're still going to try to do whatever research you want. And you're still doing three years to become a pediatrician. And then if you're internal medicine and pediatrics like me, which is like short med peds, it's med peds for short, do four years. Because what they try to do is they try to take one, the three years and the three years and put it together to where you can be qualified to take care of both populations in less time. Oh, and that right there was going to be my next question was like, did you do three years and did another three years? Or, but I see now that, they combined it and to do a four-year program. Exactly. Is that a common program? Because a lot of people are probably wondering, uh, is, it, is it that common for them to get into or how hard is it to get into a program like that? So they are 
it's not super common, but it's common. It all depends on region and then what type of institution you went to. So a lot of academic, a lot of big academic institutions will have med peeps doctors everywhere because we tend to stay wherever we do our training. And so you can have, um, like in the South, there are certain parts of Texas that don't have med peeps docs. There are certain parts of the West that don't have them. What you find more often is family medicine, which is where you take care of the kids, you take care of the adults, but they're just not as trained, as specialized as we are. And so there are about 78, 78 to 80 med peds programs like residency programs for people to do and they're kind of like sprinkled all over the states um but in comparison to like family medicine internal medicine and pediatrics where you have like 300 programs so it's not as many options but there also aren't that many people who want to do med peds so it's competitive in the fact that there aren't that many options but it's not so competitive that you probably won't be able to find a program to get into yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know we're getting into residency hard and doing such a, a great thing, what you're doing and a program like that. You know, I got to give my hat to you. I know it probably took so much to get there and I'm yeah, happy for it, you. Yeah, I mean, it's the grind. Everybody's grind is different. I feel like no one's grind to whatever successful, like whatever career path they chose, that grind is going to be hard regardless, you know? Right. And this is the grind that I decided to go on. And I'm happy and I'm blessed to be able to say I'm med pizza doc. Word. So have you already completed the residency, the four-year residency, or are you still in it? I'm still in it. I'm in my second year. Are you in your second year? That's great yeah, so because... The... Oh, sorry. Oh, no, I was about to say, I was about to go into it. Like, a lot of people want to know about the residency lifestyle and, like, what all is encompassed in being a resident. And because you're in the program, you could like give us a breakdown of the work and the uh, work-life balance. But let's start with um, how is it actually being a resident and what is the, um, the task that you have to complete regularly? I think you froze on me. Can you say that again? It froze up. Oh, my bad. I'm like, what are the tasks you have to um, do regularly? And like, what is it to be a resident? So as a resident, you're... A doctor right and so you are the doctor you know when the patients are coming in they're coming in to see you they're talking to you about their problems and you're the one who is doing the exam getting the history writing the notes putting in the orders talking to the consultants it's you baby nobody else okay at least like in med school it used to be okay if you didn't do something you know but now if you don't do something that's somebody's life that's on the line you know like you're actually messing with pe- real people's lives, real people's problems. And so it's just a different level of responsibility, but you're doing everything. The one good thing about residency is that you're never alone. Mm-hmm. So that kind of does take some of that stress out that you'll have somebody who is either above you, which is like a resident who's already completed their first year or two years or three years or whatever. And you'll have an attending who is someone who's already completed all of their training. Yeah. So uh, I think the main tasks and trades, it really depends on what rotation you're on. So since we are still in residency, they're going to be dropping you in different places to see what you want to do when you're done. So you'll be working in the clinic, you'll be working in the hospital, you'll work in the ICU, you'll be on in a specialty clinic, whether that's dermatology, rheumatology, 
GI, cardiology. They're just throwing you everywhere. And you know what you got to do? Figure it out. And work. <laughs> <laughs> That's the basic thing. I mean, you're a doctor and it's cool coming on this side because in med school, you just feel like you're doing a lot of things for nothing. Yeah. But at least like when you're in residency, you're doing what you want to do and you're actually helping people. Okay. Okay. That's dope. Um, that's really good. So what are the days like every time I talk to a resident or hear about residency is like, it's no sleep. I'll go 24 hours. <laughs> 28. So, so it really depends, you know, like just know when you start residency, your life is not your own anymore. So whatever <laughs> plan you want it, go ahead, baby. Just make sure to know it could easily be canceled. And so it all depends. So like if I'm working in the clinic, so your clinic is mainly your eight to fives, you know, or maybe even like I tend to look up my patients and prepare for the day in the morning. And so it ends up being more like a six to five or a six to six, you know, yeah. it's anywhere between eight to 12 hours. If you're in the hospital, that can go anywhere from 10 to 16 hours. So a lot of times you'll get there around five, 6 a.m. You're not leaving until six, seven, eight, and just pray nothing happens with your patients so that you can go. <laughs> but then you might have some times um, while you're in the hospital and you can actually leave at like two o'clock. You know, your patients are stable. You're doing everything you need to do. You've talked to everyone. They just need to go to sleep and wake up the next morning so you can come back and do your job. Yeah. Then you have ICU. In the ICU, it is the same like six to six. But since I'm a pediatrician too, you'll find a lot of pediatric residency programs who like doing longer day shifts to mm -hmm. help with handoffs. So what's a handoff? A handoff is basically, I'm, I'm the care provider right now. And then there's another care provider who's supposed to take over for me to care mm -hmm. for my, part, my patients. And so instead of having a lot of handoffs, they'll just keep you there. You just got to stay there for 28 hours and you hope that you can leave after 28 hours and it doesn't become a 30 hour day. Yeah. And so, mind you, there are a lot of research studies that say that it's safer. I just like sleep. So <laughs> I could do a night float. It would be nice. Um, but yeah, so we will do 28 hour shifts every four days for four weeks. Mm -hmm. So I'll be working 28 hours every four days for four weeks in a row. Mm -hmm. So those days it's like, Lord Jesus, I need help. I try to call on the police. They didn't come, you know, like problems, but all in all, you, you just make it through. You understand that it's for a certain amount of time. It's not forever. And it's so you can learn what you need to learn to be able to be a great doctor. I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, a lot of hands-on. And speaking about that, uh, the hands-on aspect of it, the educational aspect, do you still have to do projects and presents and do clinicals? Yes, we still, so most residency programs will have something called didactics, which is like class. And so you'll either have it during lunchtime, a lot of times we'll have noon didactics. So that is your dedicated time to try to learn something for the day. And so they'll have different topics where they'll teach you because we're still learners. Yeah. Throughout residency, you're still an active learner. So you'll have didactics. And sometimes the residents will present the didactics where they are the ones who are teaching other residents. And so those are the projects or the presentations that you have to do. 
okay. um, research projects. They love some places force like encourage research. <laughs> <laughs> Other places don't really care whether or not you do it. And so in my institution, they don't really care if I do research, if I want to do research, they have all the resources and things to allow me to do it. If I don't, they're like, great, just be a great doctor. We don't really care. Yeah. And so um, you have your projects. They tend to have a quality improvement project that they want everybody to do. And I really think it's a good thing to do because it's you now taking a step back and thinking, how can I make this process better? You know, like yeah. this is how the patients come to the ED, get upstairs. What in this flow have I been complaining about for the past three years that I could possibly fix. And so they do have us do those quality improvement projects just to not only help the residents have less stress, but help patient outcomes. That is dope because as a newcomer, like being a new resident there, you have a new lens. So it's like, ah, mm -hmm. oh, man, I went to another hospital and I saw them do it this way. That was very effective compared to mm -hmm. what you guys are doing. Mm -hmm. Let's try to implement that. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, mm -mm, something's not right here. <laughs> we got to switch it up. And so it's pretty cool that they allow us to have the opportunity. Yes, definitely, definitely. Um, so because you're doing a residency for both adults and peds, mm -hmm. um, do they break it up for like one year is peds, one year is adults, or do they break it up in like one clinical this month is adults, the next clinical is peds? How does that work? So we will switch every three to four months and they like us to switch like that. So we don't lose the information that we've gained. Mm -hmm. You know, so like you'll, I'll do three months of straight adult medicine and then I'll switch and I'll do three months of pediatric medicine and then I'll come back and they like us to go back and forth so that we don't get too rusty when we come back and we're still developing both brains to take care of these patient populations. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So working with the peds probably make it easy and better when you work with the adults because one, you probably got more patience <laughs> yes. when you change over from person to from adult to child. Yes. And then when working with peds, you have to have actually know all the body functions, everything because there's no one else you can go to because you are the go-to person. Mm -hmm. So with that knowledge, is it basically transferable for the adult? So it's crazy because there's a lot of things that are transferable for both. You know, we have a lot of adults who have kid problems that they've grown older and they still have those same kid problems. <laughs> you have a lot of kids who now have grown people problems yeah. and none of the pediatricians really want to address it. Like, when it comes to having kids who have type two diabetes, you know, they're so used to someone having type one diabetes, which tends to be the genetic form, whereas yeah. type two is the one that develops. And so they're like, oh no, insulin. And that was the first thought of my head too, when you say like children or peds with adult things, I was like, in the time and day now where McDonald's is just two lights away, like childhood obesity mm -hmm. was like the first thing that came to my mind. So that's crazy that you would say that. Yeah, and it, you see it a lot. And so the med peds doctors tend to be a lot more comfortable with managing those patients because we see it all the time on the adult side. And then when it comes to contraception, people don't want to give kids contraception, you know? At the end of the day, that's your personal decision. It's everyone's decision, and it's not my decision. Yeah. So if you need it, all right, baby, let's talk about it. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you don't, and it's just, it's a difference. It's 
what you're used to doing all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So it's nice. I actually really like it because I did have one situation where I had an adult who had, um, he had developmental delay. And so in his mind, he basically was a, like a six-year-old. Yeah. He was 35, you know, like a six-year-old had the emotional liability of a child, was very like regressive and was there by himself. Mm. And my attending and the intern that I was working with didn't really know how to interact with him as well. Yeah. And so it was nice that, okay, I've been here, done this. Hey, buddy, how's it going? You know? And so it's, it's really cool when you get to see different things like that. Or you see a kid who has um, cerebral palsy and, you know, now they're 19. Or you have an 18-year-old, a fresh 18-year-old who's coming into the adult side of the hospital and is scared. And all they have are regular adult doctors who just tell them everything. They don't really break things down as well. And so it's nice being able to be a physician who's used to dealing with kids and knows how to kind of normalize things in a way where it's not as scary, but still you can understand the seriousness of the situation. That's dope that you said that. Like, I just had a conversation with another doctor or whatever. And um, that was one of the things, like breaking information down in bite sizes so that the receiver, whoever the patient is, can handle it. Because sometimes most doctors and physicians or whatever will just either say the overview mm -hmm. and some people aren't able to catch it mm -hmm. or they hand you a piece of paper. And truthfully, a lot of people aren't able to read on a high level. So yeah. sometimes giving them that paper, that information, isn't actually beneficial it's the to check on a box like i informed them of what's going on but the patient wasn't able to actually be informed because they didn't really receive the message exactly and you know that's one of my biggest issues when it comes to providers is that you get mad when the patient doesn't do what you want them to do but you never really told them why they need to do it yeah you can't be mad about someone not being compliant or taking the medication when they have no idea why they're taking it and yeah. they feel fine. And so breaking things down, putting it into what we say layman's terms, which is regular everyday talk. I'm not going to sit here and give you the textbook definitions of things because you're, it's not going to do anything to you. Yeah. You know, it's like you're talking to someone who's in computer science and they're trying to tell you how to program the robot with all these big words. That doesn't mean anything to anybody. It makes sense to you because you are trained, yeah. but not to them. Yeah. So break it down, say it as if you were trying to explain it to your grandma and things are easy, but, um, hold on one moment. My computer is about to die. So another example, like of breaking things down for people, right. Is when people come to the pharmacy, mm -hmm. um, there's no need for me to be like, Oh, this is your ACE inhibitor. They were right. like, what? This is your blood pressure medicine. Gotcha. <laughs> Ah, bet. Yeah, my doctor wrote that. <laughs> yeah, they were like, my blood pressure? Right here. This is it. Gotcha. I bet. Wow. Break it down to where they understand because that you're empowering them at that point. You know, yeah. if you think about it, if you're talking to somebody and you're using words that you know they don't know, it's belittling. Because it's just you're highlighting their ignorance. And people don't want that. Yeah. Especially if they're in a vulnerable state. They're coming to you for help. Don't try to make them feel less than because you just know more. That's why they're coming to you because you know more, you know, like let them feel comfortable, break it down to where they understand and they will really appreciate you for that. Like my motto in the pharmacy is I talk to everybody like they're my first cousin. You know what I mean? Oh my. Like you're not better than anybody. 
you chose to go down that field because that's what you wanted to do. They chose to do something else because that's what they wanted to do. And we got to treat everybody the same. I do have another question for you on topic, off topic, right? All right. Um, you're not Jeremy, but when anyone sees you, they probably like you're a black woman. Right. So I know in my profession, and I just did a video on this that's probably going to be released shortly about how representation matters, right? Because my demographics, why I'm at is mainly black. And them being able to see me put them at ease because I've had a patient come in and be like, yo, my doctor gave me these medicine and didn't go over nothing. I didn't really want to ask no questions because they were trying to rush me out. Can you talk with me? And I sat down and like really had a conversation with the person and like broke the medication down, showed them how to use like the inhalers, why everything. They had like a whole medication therapy management session for this person and like our clinic room because I didn't want her to do it outside the pharmacy. And they came back about like a week later and were just like, yo, I really appreciate you for doing that because no one has ever did that. Like I go to my primary care doctor, I go into the ER and they were just like, this the issue, here you go. So mm -hmm. do you feel like representation matters or do you see something with your patients that are black and brown? Like, do you have an instant connection, if you don't mind talking about that? Yes. And so one, thank you so much for doing that for that patient, because <laughs> that's huge. Because they probably went, were driving home after their visit. Like, I don't know what I'm taking. I don't know why I'm taking it. I don't know what this is going to do to me. I'm probably not going to take it. And the next thing you know, five months later, they're in the ICU and everyone's mad at them for not taking the medication they didn't know what to take. Yeah, and so one of the things was like an inhaler and he had issues breathing. So you're like, yo, I can't breathe. And like, Thank you. <laughs> help me. <laughs> he, um, so yes, I really feel like representation matters for some, specifically for situations like that, because we understand that there is a disconnect, you know? Like, I think we look at it as if this was my mom, would I be okay with somebody treating them like this, yeah. you know? And I know just historically, black, brown, and people of minorities are overlooked. They're assumed that they are not educated. They're assumed that they're not gonna be compliant, especially if they are in one of the, if they're a Medicaid patient or something like that. All these bad assumptions are there. So some doctors who are not black or brown, will think that they're wasting their time, yeah. you know, taking that time to sit down and discuss with them, or they feel like they don't know any better, so why would I? Mm -hmm. Or I talk to them about it, but you use all jargon, and you use all medical, all terms that you didn't know until you went to medical school, and I don't remember when Mr. Jones went to medical school, do you? <laughs> so, like, don't get it, you know? <laughs> so, like, I think we also just take that next step and think a little bit further, especially with our Black and Brown patients, because mind you, we see ourselves in them, you know, yeah. like, I've had friends who are lawyers, who had the doctor walk in there, not even introduce themselves to them, she was going to the dentist, she had a problem with her tooth, the doctor walked in, didn't say I'm the doctor, didn't introduce himself, didn't greet her, walked in, started putting his fingers in her mouth, mm. trying to evaluate her, and was like, I don't even have the time to talk to this woman, because she's probably not even know what I'm saying, mind you, sis is a whole Juris doctorate. So like you <laughs> definitely understand what you're gonna say. And so I also think the piece that I see a lot from our side is just 
the mistrust from what has everything that's happened, you know, the, with the whole Tuskegee incident, you know, with, um, just the paternalistic views that, um, physicians used to have, where you do what I say, you don't ask questions about it, especially yeah. if they are in like the Medicaid clinic or like, they're like, we don't care, but I truly do. And I found times when my patients would be managed by another doctor that I'm just like on the team. And they'll like look around and look at me like, what do you think? Because <laughs> I don't trust him. And why do you not trust them? Because of just historical things. They might be a white man. They might be a white woman who's not really talking to them like they're a person and talking to them they're like they're a problem that they're trying to fix. Yeah. And so you find comfort in your people. And there's just a different level of understanding when you know what they might be going through. Definitely. Definitely. That was dope. That was yeah. dope. I like that. Um, so I got a question for you. Yeah. We are coming out of the pandemic, it feels like. And I believe last year you were starting your residency. Mm -hmm. So how was it working inside of the hospital uh, during the pandemic or mm -hmm. during the beginning of the pandemic? So it was crazy honestly um starting when the panoramic was first going on you know you had different people having different opinions and because you know I'm an internal medicine doctor and yeah. a pediatric doctor so I was going back and forth between both sides and just hearing how different fields of medicine viewed the coronavirus pandemic initially was mind-blowing so you had a lot of pediatricians who are like, oh, it's just a cold. We see kids with coronavirus all the time. It's not that big of a deal. And also because, you know, initially kids weren't really getting sick from it. Yeah. So they would get COVID, they would have a cold and they would go about their days. But then you talk to an internal medicine doctor who's in the ICU, who's watching people die, not only in the, die in the ICU, but die in the ED, mm -hmm. walking up with their last breath falling down and dying before they even get a room. Wow. It's a different conversation, you know? Yeah. And so we weren't really wearing masks before. We weren't doing the temperature checks. We were just like, oh, this mask is stupid. I hate wearing it. My face is breaking out. Can't breathe. Yeah. You know, you have all <laughs> these excuses about the mask to now it's like, oh, baby, don't get too close. Hold on. <laughs> My mask on. Hey, now we can talk, you know? So just seeing that transition when it comes to masking, when it comes to hanging out with people, you know, initially a lot of people were spending all the time together, being in each other's spaces, eating from the same stuff. That stopped. Um, then you started seeing the patients who were getting sick because it did take a little bit before we started seeing patients in South Carolina yeah. with true sickness of COVID. You know, it went crazy in the East Coast. We were like, oh, that's only going to happen to them. It's not going to happen to us. Yeah. And then it did. It went wild. All of our ICUs were full. We had to create new ICUs. We had to use the surgical suites, the places where they would do surgery, yeah. and use those as ICUs. The places where they would do like your colonoscopy or your endoscopy, those rooms became ICUs because the hospital was just so full that we mm -hmm. had nowhere else to go. And it was sad because just the amount of death, despair, and loneliness that was there. Because since COVID was happening, we stopped letting people's families come into the hospital. Yeah. So you would have someone who's on the adult side be in the room by themselves. 
whether their hospitalization was two days or 25 days, they're there alone. You have mothers who are delivering their babies and have to choose between having their mom, their best friend, or their, their partner, the baby's father there. You can't have them both. So you have people who are making these hard decisions. You have kids who can't have both parents there. I had a lot of kids who the parent, the mom would be in the room and the dad would be sitting, sleeping in the car parked outside because he didn't want to go home without his child. Wow. Yeah. That's and deep. Would, yeah, like you would have them have signs, holding signs outside so the windows of their kids' rooms to be like, daddy is here. I didn't leave you. Like, it's going to be okay. And so it's been tough. And it's a tough for us as providers because it's a lot that we have to carry to, you mm-hmm. know, every patient you want to help them, but some people you just can't. And now you have to call the family and tell them, Hey, it's time to come in, you know, get call three people. Cause that's the only amount of people you can come in. So you guys could say goodbye. Wow. Like it, it was hard. And I remember I had a lot of nights where I would come home and either like just be so close to tears because it's just so much to carry. And I didn't even work in the ICU the whole entire time. But yeah, now it's a little bit better. I was just it's about to get there. I'm like, it did a rainbow come out? Did, did you guys get better on handling the calm, the patients? Like what, what's the atmosphere now? So um, we're really big on like, hand hygiene to begin with. I would say the one thing that had changed is just the use of, um, you know, the PPE, the personal protective equipment. Mm -hmm. So gloves, the gowns, the hats, the glasses, they, at first we were just tossing them around like, oh, here you go, here you go. Everybody can take it, whatever. (laughs) And now it's like, it's a lot more specific. So if you're not taking care of this patient or you're not having active patient care, you cannot go into the room because we don't want to waste some PPE on you in case we need to use it for when the pandemic starts. If we get another wave, we have to be able to have these resources to use. So I would say that was the one thing that had changed. We were always really good at hand washing. Um, it was just the amount of material, the mask. There'd be sometimes where people wouldn't want to wear the mask. They would just stand far enough away to where they don't have to wear it. Um, I think the only times you might see people be a little bit more lax is when it's a rush situation. So say somebody's like coding or they have to go and do something quickly, you might find somebody who might miss an article of PPE. Um, Then someone's going to come and be like, oh no, here you go. We don't need to get (laughs) Here you go, buddy. I'm here to help. Definitely. Um, All right. So you got a trying job, a two-in-one. So how do you have a work-life balance? Like, is there a way that you, like, have an outlet for after work? Yes. And so work-life balance is huge to me um, to where I'm, like, very intentional of being able to separate from my job. Because in medical school, and I had realized I was just work, 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 I was very upset. I started, like, to fall into depression. I wasn't doing well. So it's like, I'm not even doing well. I'm not happy. I'm not seeing anybody. What's the point? Yeah. And when I started dedicating time to when I'm done with work, I'm going to have this time for myself, but I'm also going to make sure that I check in with my family, my friends, or I go out. Because I like people. I'm a very much a people person. 
And so I get rejuvenated by catching up with my friends. And so if I go a four week stint where I'm having the, every four days I'm doing a 28 hour call. I'm that one day that I have off, I'm going to go to happy hour with somebody, or I'm going to have like um, a night where I set up a phone call with one of my friends, or I'm going to watch a movie with one of my friends. I'm going to do something where I am being around somebody else and getting that energy from another individual. Um, I like to do things out in the town. I like to go out. I like to go to the bars, like to party, like to drink, I like to <laughs> travel. You know, I like to do all those things, and so I really take advantage of the time that I have off to do that and not push it off because that's what helps rejuvenate me. Like these last few weekends, I've either been like out of town or having my my birthday was on the nineteenth. Had a birthday. Whole Happy birthday. belated birthday. Oh, had a whole little birthday get together all that stuff and literally this weekend I'm going out of town again and so like I just take advantage of the time that I have off to remind myself that I am a person who chose to be a doctor I'm not a doctor who's also a person so that's the first thing that comes and so I do what I I have to have the balance it's it's a must and I it's one thing that I push to the students into the other residents, find that balance. Because if you don't find that balance, you're going to get burnt out. You're not gonna care about what you're doing anymore. You're gonna be sad or you're gonna be depressed. You're not gonna feel like what you're doing even means anything. And so like by you having that balance, it just makes you more of a human. And so you can have those human interactions and you can be a better provider. That is that is that is something right there. That's a major daily dose right there having that balance and i like your phrase you said you are a person who chose to be a doctor not a doctor who's choosing to be a person because some people think like your job is your life you're like no that is one part of my life it's so much more to me you know what i'm saying exactly man so what do you see yourself going in the next five or 10 years? Like, what is your next career step uh, you see yourself at? So when I'm done, I'm going where the money was at, okay? So, <laughs> <laughs> so right now, I'm like, I'm young, I'm single, so I don't really have anything tying me down. Uh-huh. So I'm going to most likely work in the hospital, and so I'll probably work in the inpatient setting. And so like when you're sick and you have to go in the hospital so they can give you the medicine, give you fluids, give you whatever. I'll do that. And then I'll also work in the nursery, in the newborn nursery. So new healthy babies, those will be the ones that I'll be caring for in that first zero to three day mark, just to make sure everything is going okay. So Mm -hmm. I'll take care of the fresh new babies and then kids and adults who have to go to the hospital. Probably do that for some time. But while I'm doing that, I'm very passionate about medical education. And so I'll be working with medical students, working with the residents, teaching them as well as getting into administrative roles, because there's a lot of things that I want to do and a lot of changes that I want to make. And you can't make those changes unless you're seated at the table and they're listening to you. And so I'm going to get into administration. And as time goes on, you know, the goal is to be a dean of something, you know, whether that's like an associate dean of diversity, equity, inclusion, of student affairs. I just want to be able to be in a role where I can help the students and help the residents have a better, healthy working environment and feel like they are appreciated and wanted in whatever institution that I'm working at. 
That's dope. That's dope. Man, I hope you make it there and do all That's those good. things. Thank That's you. Nice. I mean, if God wants it for me, it's gonna be it's gonna happen. You know, I'm just putting them in the air and hopefully he'd be like, all right, that one's good. <laughs> <laughs> she could have that one. There's one last thing I want to talk to you about. It's one of the things that you do every Monday on your Instagram. Can you tell the people a little bit about that? Yes, I can. So um, <laughs> I have something called Dr. Maka Mondays. It's on my Instagram. Um, my Instagram is at I love M-A-K-A Maka. And so Maka Mondays is just my way to help the people. It's You guys will ask whatever medical questions that you have, whether that's regarding skin, high blood pressure, diet, exercise, anything. And I'll take your questions. I'll get on live, answer your questions as well as answer whatever questions that you may have while we're having our discussion. Love to talk to you guys through the comments. Love to hear your questions and I want to educate the people. And so my next doctor, the Dr. Maka Mondays that I've done so far have been about skin. So how to care for your skin, about microdermabrasions, facials, acne, adult acne, eczema, all that stuff. I also talked about um, women's health, men's health, all types of good fonts. And so you can see some of the videos that I've already done on my Instagram and we will get some more Dr. Maka Mondays coming soon. Word, word. That's amazing. Hopefully I can get you on a live on Pill Talk Live so we can get some of those answers, some of those questions answered over there too. Yes. And I'm gonna have to bring you on over too, because I got some questions for pharmacy. Okay. Cause baby, hey. I'll be calling. <laughs> Listen, I'm ready to answer at any time. So if people want to get in contact with you, people want to network with you, uh, people want to enjoy your Maka Mondays, please give them your Instagram handle, Facebook. If you got a website they can go to, let them know how they can get in contact with you, please. The best way to get in contact with me is through my Instagram, um, the at I-L-O-V-E-M-A-K-A at I love Maka. Um, on Instagram, I'm also on Facebook, but not on Facebook as much as I am, but on Facebook, it's just Amaka Afadu. So my name, A-M-A-K-A, last name, O-F-O-D-U. Hit me up. I love talking to people. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. As you can tell, she got good energy right there. All good energy. I really appreciate you coming on today, sharing your story, and giving us a whole lot of insight on internal medicine for adults and peeps mm -hmm. and uh, answering all the questions uh i shall see you on one of these mondays for maca mondays to learn a little bit of something to learn a little more yes thank you so much for having me on your podcast this was so much fun i love talking to you loved hearing what you've been doing and your stories and like this is super dope keep it up appreciate you appreciate you thank you everybody this is pill talk podcast your daily dose of medicine here with Dr. Amaka Afudu. Afadu, you're Afadu. Fine. I apologize. <laughs> you're good. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>